Welcome to Season 3, Episode 10 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Jerry Stahl. Jerry is a writer, and his most recent book nine, nine, nine. is out now through Akashic Books. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks for having me. How is life in LA? How is life in LA? Well, you know, being a writer, I just create a bubble of obliviousness so that I can just focus on uh, disappearing into the page all day long and most of the night. Uh, so despite the world crumbling and the political hellscape aflame all around anyone in America right now. You know, uh, I'm okay. With America, with this strange political kind of state you guys are in, do you want to <laughs> tell us how it is in America at the moment? You've just had a few years of just weirdness. Yeah, I think we're working our way up to weirdness. It's just, uh, you know, Trump did everybody the favor of just unleashing everything that people were too civil to march out before in terms of racism and sexism and bigotry and just crass material grotesquerie. So uh, that's the world we live in now. And uh, there's two parties and one of them is just a complete live pretty much uh, lives in Trump's panties. So that's where we're at. Yeah. Is California any different to the rest of the states? Because I know that California has always been a bit more liberal, I suppose, but is it pretty much the same as everywhere else now? There are pockets uh, of more progressive. My daughter works for a very progressive councilwoman, so they exist, and it is certainly the most progressive state, but there are also huge chunks of California that are super conservative and launched Ronald Reagan, et cetera, back in the day. So... Uh, I'd say it's neck and neck between the fascists and the non-fascists. Let's move on to your work. You've written a heap of books. You've written for TV and worked on shows like CSI, Northern Exposure, Twin Peaks, Escape from Denimora, Marin, and Alf, strangely. Do you want to give us a bit of the Jerry Stoll biopic and who plays you in that picture? Well, the person who actually played me in that picture was, was Ben Stiller when they made mm -hmm. a movie of my first book, Permanent Midnight, about... Uh, being a, a dope fiend in Los Angeles who occasionally wrote for a living. So that happened. Uh, yeah, I sort of fell backwards into show business, slept my way to the middle, uh, married a woman who needed a green card for a few grand and uh, staggered into a staggered into career. And uh, I met up with Stiller. We became uh, great friends, best man at his wedding, et cetera. And, you know, we've been able to work together over the years. Uh, so yeah, those shows you mentioned were all sort of, you know, never been tremendously showbiz centric, but I was lucky enough to be offered the gigs. And as you know, when you got a couple of kids, you don't say no. So, uh, I've done a lot of odd television and been fired from some of the best shows. I got fired from Twin Peaks for turning in a script with blood and hair on it because, uh, I was the last person to not have a computer and, uh, Things got a little messy back in the day before I before I got clean. So uh, that's that's my illustrious career in a nutshell. <laughs> and uh, but let's see, yeah, I just did Danamora, got nominated for an Emmy for that. Uh, worked with Stiller on that and Benicio del Toro, and uh, 
just finishing up a movie. Uh, actually, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was optioned the new book, 999. So we're trying to figure out a way to, uh, you know, right now it's a soon to be never made movie, but we're trying to transition into getting something that actually happens. Is that the kind of thing that you'd want to, you know, act in or be part of in terms of like the screenwriting or those, I guess, elements of it? It's a funny thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know that anybody wants me as an actor, though I, I've certainly been in a few movies, you know, Friends directed or whatever. If called, I will serve. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I will write. Sometimes it's best not to write the screenplay of your own book. Oddly enough, I didn't write my own life story or part of my life, uh, Permanent Midnight. They brought in another writer. Uh, and since it was all about drugs and heroin, actually they hired someone who had never done heroin because, <laughs> hey, that's Hollywood. So the first draft uh, was like, Jerry shoots up and gets the munchies, which... If there are any professional drug addicts in the audience, no, that's not how it works. So it can be odd, but uh, I don't know who will write this new version. Maybe me, maybe some young, hot writer who he or she might want to dive in. We will definitely talk about 999 shortly. Um, I want to ask you a few more questions first, but that project yes. sounds really, really interesting. It's an odd one, but... You know, my, my most of my work is sort of out there. You know, I'm on the cult side of things, I suppose. Not that yeah. mainstream. Yeah. I want to ask you if you've got some highlights, I guess, working in the TV and film industry over the years. Highlights? Wow. Well, uh, there was an actor named Jack Klugman back in the day who spit soup on me. So that was, that was festive. Uh, <laughs> I can't even remember the name of the show. I think it might have been called You Again. Uh, and, yeah, and, uh, you know... I sort of have to divide it because there was a time in my life when I was writing and was completely smacked out on heroin. So, you know, I thought Alf was chasing me around the room and locked myself in the bathroom, as you see in the movie. Uh, but in real life, I mean, the best experience, I think, one of them was, was working on Marin. I don't know if you know Mark Marin. He has a podcast yeah. called WTF. Mm. Uh, one of my best friends. So when you're working, as they say, in the room... And you're basically paid to sit there with a bunch of comedians and laugh your ass off all day. It's pretty much the best job in the world. Let's move on to 999. I love this book. And as someone whose family narrowly escaped the gas chambers, I really appreciated the way you handled this topic. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that story behind writing the book? Well, first, tell me about your family. Um, what, what's your background? How did they narrowly escape getting gassed? Well, essentially, my my dad's side of the family. We had one. Uh, my great uncle went through whole way through Auschwitz, but um, on my dad's well, side, he survived. Yeah, yeah. So he um his family left. Uh, they lived in Germany. They left in uh, 1939. They got out. They were extremely lucky. Got in a ship and came to Australia. Um, so they yeah literally left at the last minute that they possibly could have. That's an amazing story because, I, I, as you probably know, America did not want the Jews coming mm. to America and turned back ships. So yeah. they went back to the old country and ended up being genocided. But, you know, I didn't realize Australia had that, that side to its history. That's yeah. fascinating. There's actually a, quite a big Holocaust survivor population here, but also quite a few Jews who were lucky enough to get out before. A lot of them were detained in detention camps, I guess during the war period but um yeah there was quite a few of them so 
a lot of them came out here. We have quite a significant population, especially on the East Coast, of uh, mm. survivors and people who got out just before. I had no idea. Were they detained in Australia? Yeah, yeah. So they had like um, detention camps that were kind of, I guess, not prisons, but they were just, you know, little camps for people who were, you know, obviously from foreign countries. And yeah, a lot of them got sure. sent places like that. Fun little camps for foreigners they weren't sure they wanted. That's yeah, right, America exactly. did the same thing with uh, Japanese Americans. Mm. Uh, yeah, this book, 999, it, it has a subtitle, which is One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. And uh, essentially, uh, it began as a six-piece series in Vice, which uh, included nothing of a personal nature. And then... I went back, I, I went to the camps in 2016 uh, when Trump was first starting, not realizing that uh, I thought I was visiting the past, but as things turned out, I was visiting the future in terms of the rise of fascism. And I wrote the book in 2021, it took me about five years to circle around it and dive in. And the premise, more or less, is... Uh, and I certainly hope none of your audience can relate to this, but I was so depressed and full of despair. I wanted to go to the one place or places on the planet where complete depression and despair and soul crushing sadness was completely appropriate. So uh, I ended up taking a bus tour with a bunch of complete strangers, some of whom had never seen a Jew which is a whole other story. Uh, and I ended up going to Dachau, Buchenwald, and kicking things off with Auschwitz. So, so long story short, I went to the camps to uh, march out my own depression and perhaps exercise it. And I'm ready to have this soul-crushing, life-changing, psycho-emotional experience in Auschwitz. And I get there. And the first thing I see is some yob shoving pizza in his face with an I'm with stupid T-shirt and slamming back an orange soda at the Auschwitz snack bar. So as you can imagine, the reality was a bit different from what I had imagined. Yeah, I think that some of those scenes in that book, uh, especially I think there's a pizza, there's a like wood fire pizza oven in one of the camps that you go to. Oh yeah. And this guy's kind of desperate for pizza. It's just like that absurd nature of it. Um, yeah, does really hit home. <laughs> well, you know, I went uh, looking for humanity and uh, I found humanity. <laughs> I guess that absurdity and the unintended irony of this kind of death group camp tourism, it gives this book like almost a surreal feeling and there's a whole lot of laugh out loud moments. And there are moments when you just want to ask what the fuck is wrong with you people. It's balanced though, with these moments of real true horror and sadness, as well as your own story in the background. Was it hard to balance all of those elements? I don't know how you write. It's things seem to work themselves out. You know, it's like Truma Capote said, I throw a bunch of words up in the air and somehow they come down in the right order. So I, I just marched the story out as it happened, and the balance sort of took care of itself. Um, it's laugh out loud funny, as you say, which is very kind of you, but at the same time, there's some of the darkest, 
most brutal uh, visions, really, that, that you can imagine. And I think that is sort of the nature of the beast. Yeah. One of the, I guess, elements of this book that I think, you know, with that series in Vice that you said, you know, didn't have the personal stuff in it. One of the features of this book is you do go into your personal story around the time of writing this book in, you know, or, or first writing it in 2016 uh, with your recent separation. And, um, you know, you've got a three-year-old daughter at home and you're obviously extremely focused on that and trying to get away from all of that despair. Do you want to just tell us, I guess, that a bit about that period of your life. Sure. There are layers to this because the, in the, the short, the shorthand version is, yeah, I, I was just, uh, it was like a country Western song. You know, uh, when I came home, the wife was gone. The three-year-old was gone and she even took the dog. God bless her. Moved to Texas. And what happened was I had written a book prior to this called OG Dad, Weird Shit Happens When You Don't Die Young, sort of a happy story of marrying a much younger woman, having a baby at a wholly inappropriate older age. And a network here, ABC, bought that and wanted me to write it. So I was hired to write this sort of happy story of my jolly home life. At the same time, the marriage had completely collapsed None of it was true anymore, but I still was supposed to write this. So that was fucked up. And at the same time, I'm over at the camps getting messages from the people at the network who hated everything about this book. They bought it having heard me on the WTF Marin podcast without ever reading it because, you know, why read when you can podcast? So I was literally in a situation where I would walk out of an oven in Dachau and stupidly check my phone and it would be can can you make Jerry less creepy and uh that was wholly surreal depressing hilarious in a very demented way and uh that was if that's at all coherence that is the background against which this all played out yeah this background pitch of this kind of almost full house like TV show they want you to make um, about this happy life and you kind of end up wanting to turn it into I guess an exploration into Nazi anima bondage and things like that um yeah I, I had the idea that wouldn't it be funny if we were closer to the truth and because I I was doing all this research before I left and uh, I'm looking at some fairly depraved websites and I thought wouldn't it be funny you know my you know the little girls playing with the dog and at the same time looking at this crazy shit on the computer and mm. hopefully she won't see but if she does by the time the uh psycho-emotional damage kicks in i'll probably be dead uh i say that in jest of course so it was a very twisted setup but it wasn't fiction it was real life and don't know about your life but quite often real life can be much more let's just say unexpectedly warped than anything you could possibly invent. Tell me a bit more about the actual idea of this becoming a TV show or a movie. Robert Downey uh, optioned it and uh, owns it for a period of time. And man, we're, you know, trying to whip up some kind of uh, movie version, but it, it's a tricky, it's a tricky one, you know, tone wise, because it's hysterically funny at the same time. So I have been told. 
at the same time, you're dealing with some of the darkest elements the human race has ever, ever survived. So it's just as writing a book was a real, was a, it was a real trapeze act. Uh, I, th I think that that applies even more in uh, attempting to bring it to the screen. Yeah, I think there's an element where, and especially today, I think I think less so in the past, perhaps. For example, William H. Gass writing a book like The Tunnel, which mm. kind of is almost, I guess, in a way, I think people could probably re read it as like Nazi like apology apologies or whatever. I think that balancing act is really hard to do. But also the, the fact that I think that there are some people who have permission to do that and some people who probably don't. And I think that getting public on board with with these kind of really, I guess, morally um, evasive concepts is that's the that's the really hard bit, I think. Well, I think if if you do it right, the art of it is you're really shining a light on what's happening because mm -hmm. You know, as you probably know, our uh, esteemed ex-president Donald Trump had a couple of rabidly anti-Semitic guests in the form of Kanye West and his pal uh, over for Thanksgiving. And you realize that nothing you can make up is as grotesque as what is actually happening. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but Hitler was not scared of being assassinated. He was scared of being laughed at. So I think the biggest tool we have is showing just how fucked up these nationalists and fascists are. And it just so happened that I was writing a book about their wet dream, which would be concentration camps. And uh, that's where we are in the year of our Lord, 2022. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is this idea of almost Disneyland-ification, uh, I suppose, of these Nazi death camps. The I guess the idea that these kind of places have been turned into these unholy museums that people just flock to and have mm -hmm. gift shops and taking selfies at the front of Auschwitz and things like that, this whole idea of us treating history like it is some kind of museum of the absurd, which I think features really heavily in this book. Do you think there's a way that we can treat these places with more respect? Like, how do we do it? Well, personally, I think the move would be to just fence it off and have people view it from afar. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of people traipsing through in their Megadeth T-shirts and slurping their sodas and chomping their pizza, uh, far be it from me to judge, but I, I found it, if not appalling, at least disturbing in what it said about human nature, which one can never underestimate, needless to say. So uh, I don't know what the answer there is. It's important to remember this isn't a concentration camp by itself. This is a museum that they have turned the camp into. And as such, whoever runs the thing decided, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a gift shop so you can get your Auschwitz refrigerator magnets? And wouldn't it be wonderful to uh, have a snack bar 
where you could get calzone. And I will add, the truly disturbo element for me is that maybe 90% of the menu was pork. So throw that in the mix. Yeah, I think that Europe, and I guess the fact that, you know, pretty much Jews, apart from France and a little pocket in Belgium, basically, there's not many Jews left in Europe at all. Um, I think Europe's become a really hostile place for Jews. And I think places like even Melbourne and Sydney have great Holocaust museums and, you know, a place like Yad Vashem, for example, in Israel sure. is done with, yeah. like that's done extremely well. I feel like that part of the problem is that there are no Jews in Europe. There, There's nobody there who's representing, you know, the Jewish people. It's kind of like this bizarre, you know, German, this is what happened and Volkswagen sponsored this exhibit kind of thing. That's something, yeah. I mean, people forget... Uh... What, what Jewish boy hasn't worn a Hugo Boss suit on his bar mitzvah? And then you realize, oh, wait, Hugo Boss designed the SS uniforms. Yeah. So, so there is that. And uh, it is important to remember, as you say, not only are there less Jews, but the, the country's governments, Poland is rewriting history. It is now illegal if you are in Poland to make any kind of statement written or declarative saying that the Poles had anything to do with running death camps, which when you consider that the Auschwitz was there and it was staffed by Poles to a large extent, they're eager, as the Germans are, to portray themselves as much, if not more so, as victims than perpetrators. Pretty scary. All right. The, the big lie is not restricted to America, is what mm. I'm saying. All these countries have their own version of their particular nationalistic lie. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Um, can you tell me, is there anything exciting you're working on at the moment? Well, I am, uh, like I say, trying to turn this into a movie. And uh, I'm working on another book. But uh, I'm a little superstitious. To me, talking about a book that you're working on, it's like, pulling a fetus out of a pregnant woman and waving it around and saying, <laughs> look at this, this is what I'm doing. You know, the problem is once it's exposed to air, it's probably dead and uh, it loses all appeal. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm writing another novel uh, in this series that I did, uh, one called Plain Close Naked, one called Painkillers with sort of a uh, bit of a demented private eye at the helm. And uh, that is one of the projects I'm doing along. Uh, I'm working on something uh, possibly about a little known aspect of uh, Lou Reed's career. But again, don't want don't want to put this stuff out into the sunlight and have it curdle and die. Let's talk about some of your previous books because this is the first book I've sure. read by you. Um, really? Yeah. But I'm very curious about some of your other work. I don't know if they're out in Australia. You tell me. Well, pretty much everything in Australia we get online. But yeah, do you want to tell me a little bit about your previous books and give me an idea of the kind of things that I should expect to read from you when I go out and get some of your other work? Well, let's see. I got 10 books. Uh, one of the collection of short stories. I don't know, about six novels. Uh, they're all pretty dark, pretty funny. There's uh, not actually one's being made into a movie in France called Happy Mutant Baby Pills, which is the story of a woman who wanted to protest the industrial poisoning of humanity by taking 
every known carcinogen known to man while pregnant and uh, hijinks ensue. I think the technical term is comedy gold. <laughs> What's, is that the title of the book? Yes, Happy Mutant Baby Pills. So that's one of my favorites. Another one that Johnny Depp uh, optioned and, and owns in perpetuity is called I Fatty. And it is a, what, I guess the best way to describe it, it's a faux memoir by Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, who was mm -hmm. wrongly accused of rape uh, and ruined at the height of his career. He was the first actor to make a million a year. He was hilarious. He was beloved. He was enormous. Also happened to be a heroin addict and a drunk. Uh, and he got railroaded. And it's a tragic story, but also it's kind of the history. If you like movies, it's really an origin story for the movies. Back then, even though it may be hard to believe, rooming houses would have a sign on the window or the door, no dogs, no coloreds, no actors. Because to be an actor was literally the lowest form of life. And lower than that was to be a what they called a movie, which is what they called people who acted in moving pictures. And uh, Arbuckle was such a snob, he didn't want to do it because it was just beneath him. But like most actors of the time, they were broke, they were working class, and they needed a gig. And these are the people who ended up, once the studio decided to give them names, being our first movie stars. So that book is another one of my favorites, I Fatty. Let's talk about some of your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? One of the books that really opened me up was a book called Last Exit to Brooklyn, which I shoplifted when I was 13 which is a just a, it's by Hubert Selby Jr., completely brutal story of people suffering uh, sexually, emotionally, psychologically, and sort of the, the back-end dockside Brooklyn. And uh, I remember, this is a terrible story, but uh, there's, there's some really sexual things that I didn't understand as a 13 year old that really creeped me out. And I, you know, I, and I, I talked to the author about this. I said, you know, I, I kind of found it weirdly aroused. He became like one of my best friends. Uh, I said, I found it sort of weirdly exciting as a boy. I didn't know what I was reading. And he said, well, you're, you're a sicker fuck than I thought you were. So that's the story of uh, the first really dark transgressive book that I read and then I got into Nathaniel West. And Nathaniel West was another one who wrote his two most famous books are Day of the Locust and Miss Lonely Hearts. And he was part of a movement subsequently called Black Humor, not in the ethnic sense, but in the sense that their humor is so dark. And it's, again, humanity at its worst. I don't know why this appealed to me, my own home life was not exactly stellar. So when I read a book like Miss Lonely Hearts, which basically starts out, Dear Miss, uh, Miss Lonely Hearts is what they call people who wrote advice columns back in the 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, Dear Miss Lonely Hearts, I was born without a nose. You know, horrible, tragic, and the kind of humor that makes you laugh and you kind of 
hate yourself for laughing. But that to me is the human condition. It's like one of my favorite quotes that actually it opens my fatties by Samuel Beckett. And he says, uh, there's nothing funnier than unhappiness. And in terms of literature, when you can take these dark emotions and this pain and find something in there, mine the laughter. I think as an artist, to the extent I can do it, that's that's kind of the job. And uh, in most of my books, I adhere to a uh, another author. Uh, I love Bruce J. Freeman. His most famous book is uh, Mother's Kisses and uh, Stern, uh, a Jewish-American writer. And he, uh, he had this dictum, you know, if you write a sentence, I interviewed him when I was a kid mm-hmm. for a literary magazine. If you write a sentence that makes you squirm, keep going. And I love that because the kind of writing I love and the kind I, I, I came to is, as the gateway books for me were the ones that say the unsayable. And I thought Beckett did that in Watt, W-A-T-T, for you aspiring Beckett fans. And um, uh, other books, I mean, I subsequently found out one of my favorite writers is a horrible anti-Semite, but I did not know that when I read him. The French author, Céline, mm. wrote a profoundly wild-ass book even the punctuation, he always ended things with ellipses, uh, two of them called Death on the Installment Plan, which is the tale of his horrifying childhood. Uh, that really affected me uh, when I read it. And of course, Philip Roth, another gateway book for me when I was really young, maybe 13, 12, way too young to be reading it. Portnoy's Complaint, where he talks about this kid being so horny he jerked off on his on like a, a piece of liver. Mm. And then subsequently his parents served it at dinner. Ridiculous, but like most dark, fucked up things in life, absolutely pitch black, true, and relatable. So Philip Roth was another gateway author for me. I could go on, but I think you're probably you're seeing the theme. <laughs> um, I like books that disturbed as much as they entertained. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on Celine and Roth, and I read Stern by um, Bruce J. Friedman a few months you ago. Did? Oh my God, I love hearing that. Yeah, it's just um, that has become one of my f- most favorite kind of I guess Jewish American books really? that I've read in the last few years. Yeah, and it does make you squirm. Oh, great to hear. Yeah, it does make you squirm. His mm-hmm. son is an incredible illustrator wow. um, named Drew Friedman who has all these drawings, oddly enough, of like Jewish comedians, you know, mm. and these weird ass forgotten comedians like Buddy Hackett, you know, mm. and just guys you forget, but have they all have these, or the three students who are like, you know, three mm. vaudeville Jews. Uh, and, and, you know, whose lives were tragic. And and, and I, I, I love that period. I love that world. And as someone much smarter than me explained, like the reason Jews and African-Americans and Irish-Americans and Italian-Americans and anybody else who's ever ghetto-wise are so funny is because it was the only way to survive. Mm. And that still applies. That still hits home for me. Yeah. And th- those guys were hilarious. And Bruce Jay was probably one of the funniest. Mm. 
Yeah, I went back and read, uh, reread The Professor of Desire earlier this year. Um, yeah, how did it hold up? Yeah, actually, extremely well. It's just become... So Roth is somebody who I, like you, read way too early. I think I must have read Portnoy when I was probably 14, wow. 15. No wonder we're friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, going back to The Professor of Desire, which I probably haven't touched in 20 years, was really good. And that whole, um, I guess, aspect of, of the Jews living up, you know, in the in the Catskills and these comedy clubs and things like that at the beginning of that book. Oh, my God, yeah. Up beautifully. Or the Borscht Belt. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. All right. Let's move on to some of the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be friends with a couple of great authors. Uh, my friend Jonathan Ames, who you may know from the world of mm -hmm. television, he did a, a show called Bored to Death that he created and Blunch Talk. But he's a great, great novelist. And his new book is called The Wheel of Doll, D-O-L-L. He created a private eye character in L.A. named Happy Doll, which, you know, right there. And uh, it's very dark, very violent, hilariously funny, and, and vain through with Buddhism and Buddhist wisdom. It's unlike anything you'll ever have a read. I can't recommend it enough. The Wheel of Doll by Jonathan Ames. Uh, another great book. It's just about to come out or maybe came out last week. It's by a guy named Bruce Wagner, who may be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, kind of L.A. novelist, though he's much more than that. He wrote a book called Roar, American Master of the Oral Biography of Roger Orr. And it's a novel but he creates a fake, I don't know if you ever read those, like, um, they're like what they call oral history. Like they did one of Miles Davis. Yeah. Uh, Quincy Troop did one. And uh, what he did, he, he invented this man and then used celebrities, real, deceased, and invented. Uh, I'm looking at the book right now. And he'll have like a quote from Beverly D'Angelo or Tony Kushner, Dave Chappelle about this fake artist roger orr who's called roar and they didn't they never said any of it. he invented the whole thing it's it's just a staggering work of invention and uh, very very entertaining so i've been reading that uh i reread uh, i don't know how to pronounce her name otessa moshfeg yeah moshfeg Thank you for helping me out. My year of rest and relaxation, which really holds up. Uh, I don't know how it is for you, but some books are like old friends, and you just want to go back and visit them again. Mm. And, uh, another one I just read was Operation Shylock, speaking of Philip Roth, yeah. which, again, says the unsayable and the unspeakable. And uh, I've been tackling for maybe the fifth or sixth time, trying to get through ADA, ADA by Nabokov, Mm -hmm. or Nabokov, depending on whether you know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, and James Elroy, who I love. And I've been reading, uh, he, has, he has a bunch of books. His, his most recent book is called, Speaking of Nazis, This Storm, which is uh, a bit about the rise of fascism among the criminal class in America. And if you haven't read, he, he, if he, I don't know if you know Elroy, but you probably mm -hmm. do. Yeah. But he, he basically writes the history of America through crime. Mm -hmm how that intersects with the government 
and assassinations, et cetera. His greatest book for me is American Tabloid, which I, I also just reread. So that's that's kind of what I've been diving into. That and uh, Flannery O'Connor, because mm-hmm. I've been writing, I'm, I'm starting to write short stories again. Uh, but she wrote a book, uh, I mean, she's, she's tagged as a Southern Gothic. But as she always says, you know, Southern people are the ones who, why we write about protests, because we're the last people who can still recognize them. But she wrote a book called A Good Man is Hard to Find that I can't recommend enough. So those are some of the ones I've been, uh, you know, pouring into my brain in Mm. three in the morning. When you're an insomniac, books are your best friend. Absolutely. I know that feeling quite well. (laughs) Sorry to hear it. The Operation Shylock, I think that has got better with age. I don't know how he did it. But I think that book resonates even more strongly now than it did, you know, when he wrote it. Funny how a lot of books do that. And you wonder, did did the book change or did you? Mm. I didn't get it or love it when I first read it. And I literally didn't want it to end yeah. when, I, when I read it now. Mm. The other one I'll, I'll um, briefly mention is Ada or Ada. That's a book that I loved when I read it the first time. And then I went back to it. And then I named my daughter, my first daughter, Ada. Oh, really? Based yeah. on that book? Pretty Isn't much. That, yeah. I, I should keep at it. I mean, I've read all mm-hmm. his books, but that one, for some reason, I just, and Pynchon always talks. The other one I actually mm-hmm. discovered it was Gravity's Rainbow, which mm-hmm. I, I'm forever reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was a big, he was influenced by, is it Nabokov or Nabokov? Help so me out. I've, I've spoken to the the biographer. like the. Of course uh, you have. Yeah, whose name is Brian Boyd. He's from New Zealand. And he says Nabokov. Okay, well, Nabokov. And uh, also Joshua Cohen, who wrote a mm. book, I think I won the National Book Award, called The Netanyahu's, yeah. which is hilariously funny. Mm. And he wrote a 9,000-page book called Wits, W-I-T-D, yeah. which I've, I also recommend. I've got um, it behind me right here. Really, it's... it's He is hilarious. He's so funny. Mm. And... Um, Another that I dip into periodically, it's, it's nonfiction. It's, uh, I'm looking because I have it on the shelf here uh, for those in the audience who can't see, um, is, is Nick Tosh's Dino, which on one level is like the biography of Dean Martin. You'd think, eh, but Nick Tosh's is such a, a deep, wild, historically, I, I don't know where he does his research, but it's, it's like a history of the Western world. Mm-hmm. through the oddball lens of Dean Martin. And uh, if you haven't read Nick Tosh's Ring for a Treat, T-O-S-C-H-E-S. Tosh's. Really? Yes. Cool. Okay, I will definitely get into those. Speaking of uh, Vits by Joshua Cohen, I feel like that and your book have so much in common because it's all about that idea of Judaism being distilled into some museum-y like Disney World. It's interesting, yeah, mm-hmm. which is definitely what happens when you go to the old country of Poland and Germany mm-hmm. and see it. And I think people would like nothing better than to pretend it's still in a museum. The mm-hmm. fact is, we're living in the fucking museum, mm-hmm. especially in America. I can't speak to Australia or what's happening over there. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not going to be long before they, they, the camps are in the mail. Mm-hmm. For any, you know, any gay people looking over their shoulder, they're not shot, they're 
they're they're you know they're they're banned, they're discriminated against, and uh, it's. I never thought in my lifetime I would I would see this happening, and somehow, like I say, the book I thought was about the past turned out to be about the future. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty scary. That shooting in that gay club a couple of weeks ago, like that's it's just insane that that can happen. And yeah, and it's the second or third gay club that's been shot up. Mm. But you know, if it's not a club, it's a school. If it's not a school, it's a grocery store. It's, right. it's, it's, this is where we live. Yeah. Um, I understand that is not a problem where you live, lucky for you, but uh, let's hope it doesn't spread like COVID because uh, it's terrifying now. And, you know, I have, I have a daughter who lives in uh, Austin, little girl, not too far from Uvalde. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it can happen here and is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the only reason it doesn't happen here is because it's harder to get guns. Um, it's really the only reason I don't think it's because we're socially any different. I think there's a lot of really terrible stuff just under the surface, but I think that you can go out and kill a couple of people with a knife, but, you know, you can run some people over with a car, but you can't shoot up a school or a synagogue. Yeah, I, I think the bottom line, and people don't like to acknowledge this, is, you know, guns are big money. Mm. And big money contributes to politicians, and politicians make the laws such as they are. And nobody wants to ban guns because they've been told that that's what being a man is in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the reality. So they're never going away. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that was depressing. Um <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I could lighten your day. <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Jerry Stoll. This episode is sponsored by Balenciaga. Order now to get your Bondicelli in time for Christmas. Use promo code Kanye to get a free vial of adrenochrome and a Wayfair storage cabinet for all of your storage needs. Balenciaga, it's fashion. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Jerry's Desert Island Books. Some of the Desert Island books I'm going to take with me are books of photographs, not just literature. I don't know in Australia if you know the photographer Ouija, W-E-E-G-E-E. -E. He took photographs for newspapers, and he basically, this is going to sound nuts, but he photographed crime scenes from like the 40s, 50s, around that period in black and white, and they're astonishing. And I think if I was on a desert island, I would want to curl up and look at those pictures to see where I am no longer living. Mm -hmm. So I would look at him. I have another great book uh, by Diane Arbus, uh, simply called Untitled, mm -hmm. which, again, is full of absolute human grotesquerie. Why I would want to look at that on a desert island, we probably don't want to know what that's. <laughs> um, in terms of reading, I think I would take books that I'm always losing myself in and trying to get through the other end of, which would include uh, The Inferno, Dante. Uh, I've, I've plowed through it once, but sort of like we were talking about Operation Sherlock, I don't know if I had the mental capacity when I read it 
to comprehend it. And maybe I would have more time on a desert island when I wasn't uh, obsessing on growing old alone and starving, mm. you know, not being the handiest fellow in the world. I probably wouldn't have a hut on that desert island. I'd, I'd have a stack of books and, and a lighter that I hope didn't run out because I would not have started fire. But enough about me. The other book I would take naturally would have to be Ulysses, which I'm sure everybody says. And uh, another great big fat book that I embarrassingly have never plowed all the way through, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, I, would, I would definitely bring that. I want to bring books that I love and know, like Gravity's Rainbow, absolutely a Desert Island book, because I've read it three or four times, and it's always different. And I would include uh, with that, you know, all, all, all the great David Foster Wallace manic 9,000 page books that he cranked out. Um, pure genius, the funniest guy in the world. Nobody wrote better about drugs. And, uh, you know, his wife finds him hanging in the garage. So, mm -hmm. you know, not easy being a visionary, is it? It is not. Yes. Speaking of the great Thomas Pinchon, obviously this podcast is devoted to his work in, in some way or another, but I'm glad to hear Gravity's oh, Rainbow. Of course. So you're yeah. totally in yeah. Do you know a lot about Pynchon? I mean, have you ever yeah. dug into that rabbit hole? I have the entire Pynchon catalog right behind me. So, yes, dug uh, into the whole lot. And his life and his mm. reality of him. Yeah. Um, you know, are, are you interested and or obsessed with Stoner yeah. and Mystique? Absolutely. His California is... He spent a very large proportion of time there, especially sure in did, the 60s yeah. and 70s. And yeah. yes, very fascinated by him and his life and hopefully another book by him at some point. One never knows. Mm. You just, what's your favorite? Uh, I've debated this about a hundred times. I've got three favorites. I go back to Mason and Dixon, Against the Day and Gravity's Rainbow as my three favorites. Um, really? Yeah. So those are my three favorites. I think Explain the day to me because uh, I'm not sure I ever made it through that. I'm, I'm going to just out myself here. So it, I it think began to feel quaint, and I know mm -hmm. the tension is brilliant, and I am the one who's lacking in comprehension. <laughs> so help me out. Look, I think it is a. I think it's probably his most filmic work in a way because I think it really? takes a lot out of. Yeah, it takes a lot out of westerns. It takes a lot out of that. Um, steampunk kind of era uh, of you know airships and stuff like that a lot yeah. of kids and balloons yeah yeah well there was a, this there's an interesting story about um this airship club there was like this big airship flap that was seen over the united states in in the late in the 1890s i think it was and um mm -hmm. there's this place called the sonora air club which people allege had some kinds of pretty interesting technology and there were kind of a People will say that they were a bit of a breakaway civilization in a way, and I think Pinchon mm -hmm. used that as a backdrop. But um, you've just got this massive cast of characters and different storylines, and and I think it just tells the the story of, I guess, leading up to that First World War period and the late 1800s in America just beautifully well. So it's got this whole Western feel to it with, yeah, a lot of just magic in it. It's just a I, – I love that. I think I read it twice almost oh, thank you i'm gonna dive back in yeah 
Yeah, it's definitely worth it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And there's just, there's a lot of really funny moments in that book. Like you, you don't have many books that have like a, a dog who's reading Henry James. So yeah, that's pretty good. That old routine? Yeah. yeah too many. <laughs> well, thank you for the recommend. I appreciate it. It's it's really been great talking about this stuff. Yeah. It sounds like we, we're yeah very much in the same kind of headspace with literature. So that's nice. Well, cool. Might have to wrap it up with you because i got to go to work. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Before you go, do you want to tell us uh, where we can get in touch with you and where we can go and buy 999? Well, I do believe I just heard yesterday about something called bookshop.com, which is where you can go online and go to any bookshop you want Mm. in the entire world and get the book. Otherwise, all the usual places, any bookstore or, uh, you know, any used bookstore where I won't get any money but you may get them cheaper, which <laughs> can't beat that. And where can we catch up with you online if you have an online presence? I have no website, but I do have a, a fan page somebody maintains on Facebook for Jerry Stahl. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, I'm a little bit on Twitter, a little bit on Instagram, but I don't do, I don't have a website. Brilliant. What can okay. I tell you? Awesome. It has been a pleasure chatting with you. I love 999. I'm going to go out and get uh, quite a few of your other books and also some great recommendations there. Thank you so much. Well, it was a treat talking to you and uh, good luck with all of it. Thanks once again to Jerry Stoll. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.